You're listening to the You're Such a Catch podcast with your host, Aaron, <laughs> whose journey in dating and relationships is on full display for your empowerment, education, and honestly, your entertainment too. Hello, friends. Welcome to You're Such a Catch. I appreciate you tuning in week after week to hear what I have to say. If you're new to YSC, welcome to our inclusive community. I'll give you the quick Reader's Digest version to catch you up to speed. I'm Erin. I started this podcast to document my experience with dating and relationships and to really be relatable to others who are out there waiting patiently for their plot twist. A plot twist to me is a way of describing a game changer. So for you single folks, it's meeting the man or woman of your dreams. For those of you who are in relationships, it's learning how to keep that love and spark alive. It's progressing your relationship in a positive direction and essentially finding a way to choose each other over and over again. Now, for those of you who are you know, just coming out of a breakup or maybe you're recently divorced, I've been there. I've been in your shoes. And I'd like to be an integral part of your journey moving forward. I'd like to inspire you and help you discover yourself again. That was important for me in my journey. And I want you to feel confident because we need that confidence so that we can progress and be ready for, you know, the next chapter for what awaits us. As I documented my life as a single woman on this podcast, I really worked hard on myself. I was out there trying all the different dating apps. I was finding fun and inventive ways of connecting with men who were outside my circle. I had dating and relationship experts on as guests so I could learn and evolve. I put it out into the universe that I was ready to meet my unicorn, the man I envisioned when I made a list of all I wanted in a partner on August 9th, 2015. Now, you guys, I revised that list several times over the years. The universe delivered, and ironically, it was this podcast, You're Such a Catch, that was the conduit to the connection. Well, that and my favorite dating app, Hinge. To hear the full story of how I met Jamar, you can tune in to season two, episode 24, I Manifested a Unicorn. We've been dating now for over four months, so it's still pretty new. But when you're at our age, he's 41, I'm 39, I feel like things progress at a quicker pace. I attribute this to us knowing what we want, to realizing we make a great team, and that we want similar things out of life. The one thing that scares me a bit, though, is wanting to have a family. That only feels scary to me because of my age and knowing that the older you are, the more challenges you face. That aside, one of the biggest blessings that has come from this relationship is our ability to communicate with one another. When a relationship progresses at a rapid pace, it forces you to have some serious discussions early on. You're merging two lives together, and in our case, two lives of people who have been very successful independently. We've been going through life only having to make decisions for ourselves, and now we have to do so as a team. And sometimes that involves hearing both parties' perspectives and talking those through. Being that this has been a big theme in our daily lives as we maneuver working together, planning for the next steps in a relationship, you know, are we ready to move in? What are our thoughts about marriage and family? Being an effective communicator and being able to connect and articulate your feelings, thoughts, and emotions is so important. It requires vulnerability, maturity, yes, I said it, maturity, (laughs) 
and some skills. You need to be able to listen and process and at times be empathetic to the other person. This comes so easily to Jamar. He's a trained public speaker. He loves to be in front of a crowd. The more people, the better. So when he's one-on-one with me, it's like a slam dunk. It's easy peasy. But for me, I have minimal training. I experience anxiety, I have nerves, and sometimes I have trouble articulating my perspective in a clear and concise manner, whether I'm in front of a group of people or I'm one-on-one with him. It's an area of opportunity for me that I recognize, and I bet it's an area of opportunity for others. Maybe you. Today's episode is all about improving your ability to communicate, to better your relationships, whether they be professional or personal, and feeling comfortable sharing your story, because all of us have a story to share. Eventually, I will get my act together with video because I would have loved to document this conversation visually. But until then, you'll have to check us out on social media. So you can find me at You're Such a Catch, just like the name and title of this podcast. And you can find Jamar at Jamar J. So it's J-A-M-A-R-R-J. I do not feel comfortable public speaking, which is funny because I have a podcast, but this is different. This is different to me than public speaking. And I've told you before, like, I really want to do live events, but I don't feel like I'm confident enough to get up there and to do them. So I'm going to give you a couple different scenarios because when I used to run my own team, so back in the day, I used to have my own department in a car dealership and we had to do monthly meetings. And even in that setting, like sitting around a boardroom table, I would feel some sort of way. I would kind of have fast heart rate. I'm always a sweaty person. I'm just naturally sweaty. So that's what would intensify a little bit. Same thing like on Monday morning meetings. So Monday morning meetings were different. Monday morning meetings, I was the only female because there were no other female managers that were on the operational side of things, right? I mean, there were in the business office, but not sales, that type of thing. And I would have to speak to my department's performance. Okay, so... I could definitely like get through it, but it was still uncomfortable. Then when I moved into my new role and I I won my award and then I was looking to move up and my boss at the time wasn't going to allow me that opportunity unless I took an up, which is basically a customer off the lot. And I was like, I take ups all day long. That's when, you know, my mentor in the car business was like, Aaron, make the list. And that's when I manifested my job. And I don't think I had any idea what I was getting myself into. So I was, I was sales. I was selling now to car dealers and I was in charge of basically putting together my presentation to get up in front of general managers, dealer principals, and telling them why they should use my product, right? And as my role evolved in that job, I was in front of some pretty heavy hitters, some some people who were bringing in the mucho big bucks. And yeah, I had to get up and I had to not only present value, but also connect with them on a deeper level, right? Still didn't love it. I could do that better. I could execute that better than doing it in front of my peers. Doing it in front of my peers made me feel a completely different way. And then when you obviously are asked to be a bridesmaid, a maid of honor, anything like that. And it's a different type of public speaking. It's something where 
I never really wanted to write out a script. I always wanted to speak from the heart. And I would think about what I was going to say. Like, I even know in my head right now, like things that I want to say when my brother gets married one day, just because with him, it seems very natural because I've spent so much time with him. And like, there's all these different milestones like I would like to recognize. But even when, you know, my best girlfriend, Cassie, got married, I was nervous to get up there and to say something. And I wasn't the maid of honor. I was a bridesmaid. But when you love somebody and you want to, be part of that moment and you want to articulate verbally how much they mean to you, I think that's important. And those are the things that you can sometimes go back and reflect upon because typically they're recorded. And I remember in that moment getting up there and winging it and trying to mix in some humor because I am definitely not trained in the humor department like you are, but I sometimes can be funny. So... (laughs) So I want to learn. Teach me the tricks to be a better communicator. And not just publicly, but also in a relationship. Because as we've learned, like communication is key. And that's one thing I really appreciate and value about our relationship is the fact that we can come to each other and talk through different scenarios with one another and do it in a respectful way and sometimes talk about the difficult things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think you touched on a lot of key things while you were speaking. I think a lot of times we we have the the skill set and we know the answers, but we haven't put it in an organized, structural way that allows us to have repeatable, predictable results when we're communicating. Even last night, we had a, we had a somewhat difficult conversation after a long day together, and some a lot of positives, but there were some things that we kind of clashed and rubbed heads on. But what I do notice is that when you spoke, you really focused on like how you felt Mm -hmm. and the fact that how you felt wasn't necessarily the reality, but Mm -hmm. it was just how you felt. And you understand that there's a separation between what you feel and what everyone else is actually acknowledging is really happening. So that's that showed a level of like you have the capability to step outside of yourself. You mentioned something when you were talking about your ability to like perform at the highest level in front of the big wigs. A part of that is because water rises to its own level in the sense that like when the stakes are highest, you lock in, you get focused. A part of that is something that happens in the brain naturally because typically human beings never really stand and talk in front of the group of people or mass of people unless they did something wrong and they had to defend themselves or be banished from the tribe. So this is why people get a heightened sense of fear when they speak in front of large groups because it's built into our DNA that you only speak in front of people when you're either the leader, mm-hmm. and so you're trying to get people to rally around something important, or you're about to be banished. And as a leader, if your idea is really crappy, people back in the days were like, no, nah, you're, you're leading us into harm's way. Let's just stone you now, right? <laughs> so even as a leader, there's pressure to, like, to perform and, and, and actually inspire, or, or else you can get replaced, right? And then on the other side... If you did something wrong and you have to defend yourself and you're not convincing enough, now you're on your own as a human being. And as a human being, individually, none of us can survive completely alone. It's just not possible. I mean, in the city, it looks like it is because you see there's a whole bunch of homeless everywhere. and Well, they're alone. But reality is they still have communities. They still go places. They still lean on like other services. So no one is really just all alone because the animals would get you or the environment would get you. Even the fact that you have a tent and you're a homeless person with a tent, right? Mm -hmm. 
where did you get that tent from? Someone manufactured it. So that meant like a whole, there's hidden support in a lot of places in our lives, right? So you have leadership and you have banishment. Mm -hmm. Those are what's heightening the fear and the anxiety inside of a speaker when they're unprepared, but also when they don't understand like what's the worst that could happen and have acceptance around that. Luckily for me, I started learning how to publicly speak in high school for different portfolio projects. So in there, I was public speaking, but I had a lot of preparation because I was talking about a topic that I researched, that I wrote a 20-page paper on, that I went back and forth on the different points. And so it was kind of internalized already, but I still used to outline on note cards and have it handy Although I would be able to deliver it mostly without looking at my note cards, mm -hmm. I wasn't afraid to have that note card available just to look at. Fast forward another seven, eight years from that point where I was in high school. Actually, take that back. Go back to when I was 18 years old. I was speaking in front of about 2,000 people at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel for a nonprofit called Facing History in Ourselves. And I got to meet Kofi Annan. We trained for six weeks with a speaking coach. Mm -hmm. And the speaking coach taught us a ton of different techniques, most of which I could never, I couldn't tell you what they were. But I do remember that we wrote our speeches out and then we memorized our speeches. And I learned some techniques for memorization that I still keep to this day. But what I also realized is when you memorize a thing, your mind is caught up with remembering the exact, yeah, the verbatim, livia, right? Right, verbatim. Yeah. And that's a very dangerous thing uh -huh. because agree. if you forget a line, you it's like you're off track and now you don't know where to find yourself back into the track. So I've been, been coaching people and speaking for a number of years now and I use something that people might look at as being a little bit more difficult. It makes everything you do seem off the cuff, even though it's not. It's because I know how to organize my thoughts. And it was something you mentioned when you talked about why you think you, why you would feel comfortable talking about your brother at his wedding mm -hmm. is because of all of the stories you have. Mm -hmm. The love you have for him means that it's, it's all love and there's zero fear in you expressing how you care about him. So there's no anxiety there. But the key thing is to think about the stories, right? Whenever you get up to speak, they say facts tell stories sell. Mm -hmm. So whenever you're going to go speak about any topic, what you want to think about is, well, what is a story that relates to this person, this topic, this sale that I'm trying to make? What's the key story? Then what are the takeaways from the story? Now, I like to always use threes as much as possible because first of all, three is the maximum that a person is going to remember from a talk, right? So you want three to be the max. You can do five because it's also an odd number, but you have to make sure that those five points are anchored in some sort of anchor word. Mm -hmm. So in speaking, when I'm coaching people, is, is there's something called a memory hook. Mm -hmm. A memory hook might be a word that you use. And let's say that word is big. This, this podcast that we're going to deliver today is, is a big episode, right? Mm -hmm. And big is an acronym, right? The B stands for beautiful, right? And what's beautiful about learning how to communicate better is that you raise your value in every area of your life. You raise your value in business, of course. Mm -hmm. And you can speak eloquently off the cuff or appearingly off the cuff to people. Your perceived value, your perceived intelligence, your perceived confidence 
is increased dramatically in the eyes of other people, right? It's beautiful from a relationship standpoint because when you can speak clearly, concisely, without the ums, without the so's, without the buts, it appears as if you're more genuine. Mm. It appears as if you have less to hide. It appears as if you're more certain on what you want the outcome to be in the situation. Mm -hmm. So going and looking at like how you just delivered this opening, one of the things that I want you to consider is slowing down Mm. your ability to speak, your ability to approach. Because oftentimes when we speak at our normal frame of speech pattern, it's a lot quicker than we realize. When you're speaking in front of groups, since you're up there and if you speak at your normal frame of rate, you're not making complete eye contact with every single person at every moment. And everyone can all, can't all see your lips when you're further away. Mm-hmm. So speaking faster is actually hard for people to actually process what you're saying. That's why if you're not hitting it on the head, people are kind of like, do- they're kind of like fading out and just dozing off into the sunset. Yeah. With, right. And so one of the things you do in part of the beautiful part of speaking is slowing it down actually makes it more digestible mm-hmm. and you give people a chance to actually feel the points that you're trying to land when you deliver a beautiful, eloquent, off the, off the cuff, impromptu speech. So that's what the B stands for in big, right? The I stands for introspective. Mm-hmm. You see, when you are introspective, you're actually making yourself more connected to the people around you. Right, Because everyone can see a connection in your story because none of us are so unique like we're all snowflakes, right? (laughs) All of us are genetically 99.99% the same, but there's a 0.01% difference that makes us so unique. So we're all more the same than not. Mm -hmm. So when you tell an introspective story, you allow yourself to be humanized and connectable to people because everyone can either identify with that and empathize or they can sympathize because they know someone who's gone through or is, or is experiencing currently or in the past something that you're experiencing, right? So we have beautiful, we have introspective, and that's keeping in line with, remember, telling your stories. Mm-hmm. The stories are, first of all, not hard to remember because they're actually inside of you. They live inside of you. They happened. Right? They (laughs) happened, right? So you don't have to like remember necessarily every detail. You need to remember the key details. You need to remember the the order of the story. And then what's the key points? What's the highlights? And then what's like the resolution of that story, right? Now the G is for the grand gesture. The G is for what do you want the call to action to be Mm -hmm. after you get done speaking? What do you want people to take away with? What do you want them to come up to you for? And if you notice, every great speaker, they have that where they deliver it beautifully. It's like, wow, that was great. It was smooth. It was elegant. Introspective. I felt connectable. They revealed their feelings. They revealed like what they wanted the outcome to be and what didn't happen and what was the reason why. But then the grand gesture is the call to action. Now, what I just did with BIG, B-I-G, Right, beautiful, introspective, and grand gesture. What I just did is I used a memory hook, mm. and I took a word, and I just randomly did that. That was off the cuff just now. Wow! I took the word "big" because it was three letters, mm-hmm. and I knew I could make that into an acronym. But because I was speaking slow enough, I was able to 
while I'm talking about the B, process where I was going to make the I. While I'm talking about the I, think about where I could take the G. Those letters could be completely different words if I redid it. But I, but to me, what's so beautiful about it is that big is something that everybody knows, right? Oh, you want to be big. You want to be larger than life. Mm-hmm. But big is a word we use. Oh, yeah, that was big. Oh, it was a big accident. Big, big. So the word is, 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 is a normal word for everyone to, to understand, right? But then I repurposed the letters of that to create a memory hook. Now everyone is going to leave thinking about how to make their talks big. Mm -hmm. If you make it big, then it's impactful. Yeah. Okay, so how do you slow down your brain enough or compartmentalize so that you're speaking and thinking at the same time, but those worlds aren't clashing inside your head? Because one thing I do have trouble with is as you're talking, it's jogging memories and it's making me look inward and kind of do some self-evaluation, like thinking of different times and thinking of ways in which I can improve. And so I kind of go off on this tangent a little bit. And I don't, I don't know if that, I'm assuming that's natural. Like, I don't think that's like being like having like attention deficit disorder, because I'm definitely like focused in and honed in on what you're trying to get across. But I have this thing where gets the wheel spinning. And then I'm like, okay, I want to hear this point, but I'm also in the back of my mind thinking about all these things that kind of like go with that. So Mm -hmm. how do you keep that concise and clear and not have it be all mucky (laughs) in your brain? Obviously it, it takes a lot of practice. I'm a trained improviser. So I went to training to learn how to improvise, right? And then I've been doing stand-up for 16 years. And then I've been public speaking since I was 18, right? So 23 years. But what I will say is one way you can enhance that is by writing. So writing out some of the ideas that you have and just writing more is going to make you a better speaker, Mm. right? So writing for the purpose of I'm going to speak this out one day. So writing how you would speak. The second thing is... When you listen, there's two types of listening. There's listening to respond and there's listening to react. Mm -hmm. Listening to respond is actually taking in what they're saying and putting it as something to address within your points, within the stories that you you want to tell people. So one of the ways you can practice is just slowing down your delivery and your response back to the person. Mm. If you slow it down, what I'm what I'm hearing you say, Erin, is that there are a lot of ideas that start to just explode and, and form in your mind when you hear someone speaking and it gives you ideas, it gives you inspiration. However, you don't want those ideas to then over like overwash what they say mm-hmm. so that you are actually not really connecting with what they said. You're just merely reacting because of everything inside of you. So it's almost like you have to, when you have an idea or an image or a story pop up in your head, you have to think about that story and know that that story, you're not going to forget it. It's you. It's within you. Mm. So, oh, it's a story about when I was 12 and then park it. Yeah. Don't try to, don't daydream about the story. Uh Like still continue to listen. But then when you when you come back to having the opportunity to speak, you want to have either limited how many ideas you want to address in that moment. So like I said, three at the max, but maybe it's just one story that really is going to get the point across. 
because that might have the biggest impact than telling three stories where what's the point of all three of those and is it, it going to be lost on the person? So when you're in a situation where you're kind of taking in and then you're going to go up and speak after, you want to highlight in your mind what are the three points. And then maybe even with your finger coming up, point one, point two, point three, and like you say that to yourself and then you go and you deliver it, right, in a very concise way. Again, speaking slower is going to allow you to also think at the same time. Mm-hmm. I know it sounds it sounds odd, but if you just talk just a little bit slower, it's almost like you're Neo in the Matrix. Everybody outside doesn't <laughs> feel it as slow as you feel it slower because you're intentional with it. Yeah. But your listeners, you give your stories space to breathe, which means they get to kind of visualize it themselves and imagine themselves within your story. Mm. And they get to, you want to paint pictures in their minds. Yeah. And then as you're doing that, you're able to decide where do I want want to take this story next. The way I want to take this story next is say, hey, if you put some work into these these little tips and tricks, and of course there's more, right? I actually, I have a book that that I'm writing called Speak Fearlessly. Mm -hmm. And it's some of the techniques that I do when I'm teaching people kind of one-on-one and I'm like, I want to make it accessible because obviously I can't coach everybody in the world. And and so if I were going to coach people, I charge like three grand to coach Mm -hmm. people, right? 12 sessions. So most people can't really afford that, right? I know that. So if I have a book that's 20 bucks Mm -hmm. and it has the techniques, they can read it and start to learn those techniques on their own. So that's the purpose of a book, right? But when I think about you wanting to speak live and wanting to speak at events and even podcasting, like, sure, you will be better over time with just sheer practice. But if you use actual techniques, you have a framework of tools that you can put in your tool belt. And so I can envision you on stage a year from now knowing, hey, I've got, I know 40 tools. I've been trained on 40 tools, but I use three or four of them routinely to make my storytelling better, to make it more efficient, to use pauses, to, <laughs> yeah. to sometimes just connect in the audience, connect with your eye contact. There's, all, there's a whole bunch of little techniques that you can learn that will enhance your ability to feel confident that you can, with very little kind of material in the moment, mm-hmm. you can pull a lot out of it. Do you think, though, that, like, certain people are just more naturally gifted at that? Or do you think, like, anybody can achieve a very high level of public speaking? Because obviously we have a similar frame of reference, like a a circle that we share or whatnot. And in that circle, we've been in several scenarios where people have gotten up and and spoken to address a room, whether it be giving a toast at a dinner, whether it be we're in a training course together, which I know I shared with you, my family thinks it's funny that we are constantly learning together, but I like really appreciate it and geek out on being able to do that with you because I think that's a unique thing that we both share is we're constantly evolving our skill set and learning and, and open to just being a better human at whatever it is. But in seeing these different people stand up and deliver their speeches, some are, in my opinion, 
and I don't know their training, but some are just, they speak from the heart. There's emotion there. Like you said, there's eye contact. It evokes a feeling within, whereas other people get up and I have to be careful to almost think like, oh, is that disingenuous? Or maybe it's, it's more so you just connecting with the person and my connection isn't as strong with that person. So the message hits differently. I mean, of course, that's some people are more personable than others. But when someone is really good at speaking in in a group setting, it's very obvious to most of the people in the room that they're good at it. And even if you don't necessarily like a person, you can almost dislike a person. But if they're good at at speaking in front of the room, it's like oh, got to give them. You like it's like I got to tip my hat to that. Like that was a good mm-hmm. that was a good speech. And I think that there are elements of speaking, like I said, what's your level of vulnerability? What's the level and the detail of your storytelling? Just the right amount of information allows people to paint their own vision in their mind, but too much information and you're you're rambling, right? Mm -hmm. And so- Which I could easily be caught and guilty of doing. Part of it is just reps and and practice and- also, I would say it's watching yourself on tape, Ooh, recording, yeah. you're recording yourself. Like you do a good job of like re-listening to every one of your episodes before you send it out. And and I think that that's great practice and it's good. It, that's definitely for sure helped you become better as a podcaster. But I think you have to also put yourself in situations. And that's why I always recommend to my coaching clients, Toastmasters or other other public speaking organizations out there training that are of a group variety so that you can get practice working in front of the room because I've gotten a bunch, I've got thousands of hours of practice from high school Mm -hmm. and then from doing stand up and doing open mics. Think about it, comedy. And that's ultimately one of the, the, my superpowers is that humor is the fastest point between two people. Mm -hmm. When you can make someone laugh, notice I said make. And so you have someone laughing involuntarily at something you say that automatically heightens their connection to you Mm -hmm. as an orator. So the fact that you look for opportunities to try to like pull in comedy is great, but it's learning how to do comedy at a higher level and doing it in a way that can be appropriate for all settings. I've done some corporate events. Corporate events pay very nice in comedy. In fact, I mean, unless you're a touring national headliner, like you're going to make more doing corporate comedy. So no one can know who you are, but you show up and you address the elephant in the room Mm -hmm. and you get a nice fat check. But you have to do that in a very clean way. You have to do that in a very universally friendly way. Well, sure. HR. Right? (laughs) Right? Yeah. So... I would say that like learning some of these speaking techniques and then learning how to be vulnerable with yourself is really like instant comedy. This is why most comedians are very Mm self-deprecating. Well, I feel like my humor is even very self-deprecating, which 
could definitely work against you too. And I, I had to catch myself a little bit, especially when I'm trying to make sure that I'm of a positive mindset. I'm coming from a place of abundance and I'm speaking into the world what I want to come back at me. And I have to be careful like to separate that humor a little bit, especially when it came to my relationship status and what I actually wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big believer. Everything you say does have power. And so I don't really use a lot of self-deprecating humor. I definitely can acknowledge the things that I'm not good at, the things that I that I fail at, that I've tried at. But for the most part, I like to focus on like what things what things I do really well and how that affects relationships in my life mm-hmm. and how that affects how I see things. And and that's just how I do my humor, which is very rare. I remember I got done with a set one day and I did I killed on stage and I get off and this club owner uh, he comes up to me. He's like, "Oh, that was really good." He said, "But you could have, you could have got more laughed if you if you went the other way with some of those jokes. If you went self deprecating." I was just like, "And this is a guy who's to me is not very funny at all, mm-hmm. but he's giving me advice on using more self deprecation." I think that that's the route that most people take. Mm-hmm. I like to go the opposite way because it's harder, but also I feel like I'm trying to always increase my self esteem. Mm, not mm-hmm. lower my self-esteem. Exactly. There's a lot of things, a lot of us struggle with imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. It really doesn't matter how successful you are. A lot of people feel like one day they're going to find out, they're going to find out I'm a, I'm a fraud. A lot of people feel this. I mean, multi-multi-millionaires, yeah. successful people feel mm-hmm. this. So it's very human. So I think you have to be careful on the direction that you point mm-hmm. your humor. Now, here's another thing. They call it punching down. You want to avoid punching down. You want to punch up. But also, you got to be careful about that because I, I, I'm always leery of people who assume that someone got success by just cheating their way. And so the people who are successful, there are a lot of people who were like, oh, yeah, I wonder who they screwed over to get that. And so they punch up, but it's to like make fun of people who worked very, very hard and you have no idea what they sacrificed. So it's like for me, I like to try to I like to try to keep the focus on myself and how I view things, and that's how I leverage humor in a, in a way. It is a little bit harder, I will admit. It's easier to just be like, "Oh, I'm I suck at this and I suck at that," and this is look at look at how much of a failure that I am. But in the end, my goal is to try to inspire people and to create transformation in people with tips and tricks and tools that can help them get more out of them, their own performance, their own capability, and life in the end. So that's the kind of comedy that I use. That's the kind of motivational, inspirational speaker that I am. And I think that as long as you're alive, as long as you have 89 billion neural connectors in your brain, right, you should be able to learn more and be better every single day if you're using them. Mm-hmm. And there's a saying, if you don't use it, you lose it. Right. So if yeah. you're not using your brain cells, if you're if you're not challenging yourself, if you're not learning new things and making new connections, and then also just practicing that delivery, like on my phone, I have over eight thousand videos that I've literally either been performing or made talking to the camera or walking and talking. And so it's a lot of practice that goes into it. And so what looks like a natural is someone who learned, did, and then repeated. Mm-hmm. a bunch, a bunch of times. So as somebody who wants to get better at public speaking or just speaking in general, I know I 
am terrible at the likes, the butts, the ums. Uh, (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Case in point. I guess my question is, there is like a fear, right? Going into even putting yourself out there to be part of a Toastmasters or to take a course. I mean, I think about, and it's trauma on a very low level, but I think about, I took public speaking during the summer in college because I didn't want to do it with my everyday peers. I wanted to do it with outside of that. So whatever irrational fear I had in my head about what that looked like. So I took it out of public college, which is funny because I went to private school, right? And I will never forget this. So it was impromptu speaking week. And what we were tasked to do is everybody needed to write down a subject in which they wanted somebody to give a speech on. We folded them up, put them into a little thing. And when it was your turn, you drew the piece of paper out and whatever it said on that piece of paper, you had to get up and do a little impromptu speech on. And there was a structure, right? So there was like an introduction. You had to, I don't know, do a client. I forget what the whole thing was, right? And tie it back. Do you know what subject I drew out of that hat? No idea. Okay. I drew being a stripper. Whoa. (laughs) So if you can imagine, like this is a true story. Like if you can imagine, like I was already nervous about getting up there. And then I get up there and I have to give a speech on being a stripper. This was at San Diego State. So, or no, it was at San Diego State. Maybe I took accounting at San Diego State. It might have been Mesa Junior College. I forget. But anyways, I'm sure my mom would remember. She's a much better historian than I'm in. But I got up there and and I did it. But it was like traumatizing because I had no idea where to go or what to say. But at the end of the day, like, I mean, I made it through. It was fine. Like, passed the class. But... Is it just sheer like throwing yourself out there and and just being like, okay, I'm okay with whatever outcome? As an audience member, one of the very first comedy shows I went to with you, a woman cried and she got up there, she bombed, she cried, she got off stage. As an audience member, I felt for her, but at the same time too, like I've told you this since day one, anybody who gets up on stage and, and puts themselves out there like that, like kudos to them, mad respect. Yeah, I mean, we'll leave it on this, but when you get a, an impromptu subject and it's, uh, it seems so far out there, that's the opportunity of a lifetime to have the best time ever. Going opposite of what people would assume that subject would entail. Mm-hmm. So case in point, and this is where the vulnerability and like being able to laugh at yourself. Right? Yeah. Like my subject is, is stripper. And what I want to tell you all about is that how many people have a misconception about strippers. Many people think that strippers are just all about the fast cash. And let me tell you, the money is a lot easier than other professions, especially when you look as good as I do. <laughs> because because there's a lot of work and preparation that goes into being a professional stripper. Case in point, I have to stretch at least two hours every single day to make sure that I can hit the splits. <laughs> Do you, do you see how I'm taking yeah. it? So yeah. there's a way in which you can envision what the life of a stripper is and then add complexity or take away complex. Like there's a way that you can just play around with the subject. And the other thing people don't think about is what are the expenses as a stripper. I mean, in my case, as a male stripper, right, I have to buy a lot of baby oil oh, God. on a uh-huh. weekly basis to keep my sheen. 
yeah. and keep my shine. Uh-huh. And then what's happening as people are laughing, you're letting them laugh and you're thinking about where do I want to take the story next, mm. right? Because you're mm-hmm. really being playful with, yeah. with the subject matter. And and honestly, too, like I at one point in college thought about being a stripper because you did? I actually did. Oh, my God. Let me explain Confessions. why. Okay, yeah. let's hear so when I was in college, I was on a scholarship, but it only covered books, tuition, and fees. It didn't cover cost of living. So I worked 40 hours a week for all of college. And at one point, the only job that I could get, I had a job bussing tables, and that was just backbreaking. So I got another job, and it paid me six seventy-five an hour in Alabama, and I was at a Winn-Dixie. And I was a what's a Winn-Dixie? Winn-Dixie is like a grocery chain. Oh, okay. And I was literally stock. I was a stocker, uh-huh. so I stocked the shelves from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. in the morning. Wow! And Every day, four to five days a week. Okay. And then went and, to school and, and then played I went, basketball. And then I went to school. Yep, exactly. And it was on. And I was on an ROTC scholarship, so it was ROTC. Mm-hmm. So I had to do military training and things like that. So I thought about being a stripper because I thought it might be easier faster way to make money. And I was in great shape. I had an eight pack, you know what I mean? I was fit. I was I was in college. I was like 19, 20. I was like, oh, I could be, I could be like genuine. It's 10, 10. Where you been? <laughs> right? And uh, but but oh no. But I thought what I, the only thing reason why I decided not to be was because I thought about all of the the unattractive overweight women that I would have to probably dance for. Oh my God, that sounds terrible. I know it sounds terrible, but that (laughs) brought me back to my senses and was like, you know what? You might have to strip for people you don't want to really strip for. And so- Yeah, but I mean like this sounds terrible that you're calling out that group. (laughs) No, no, but but I'm just thinking like that group probably are the people who order strippers the most. And when I was just thinking about who my clientele would be, you got to serve whoever's willing to pay. And I'm like, "Eh, yeah, that's not going to work for me. I don't even want to have to subject to myself. Or what if it was like dudes ordering, hey, we want to have we want to have uh, some stripper dudes. Like I was like, <laughs> so I just thought about all the pros and cons. Yeah. And I was like, that fast money ain't gonna come fast enough. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I was like, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna scratch that idea. No, but then the other thing too was I just thought about what I was going into, the profession I was going into to be a naval officer. And I just thought about what, how would I feel if 10 years from now my career is going great and some pictures surface up with me with a with a thong on oh, and, Lord and, help some, us. and some tassels with some baby oil. Some tassels? Yeah, because tassels used to be big in the 90s. On men? Well, well, yeah, like the cowboy. Like you have like a uh, thong with tassels on it. Oh, I was <laughs> like thinking on your nipples. No. <laughs> I don't know why your mind went there, but <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the only place I've seen tassels before. Yeah, but so anyway, I, I just thought it all the way through, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Yeah, that's not gonna work for me." But the point is, is that I could take that subject of uh-huh. being a stripper, yeah, have fun with it, play with it, make make the people laugh, and then tie it back to a real hit. And here's what I experienced, and here's why I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. And what about the physical things that happen to you when you're nervous and you're speaking like for me? So you felt comfortable bringing note cards up. Now you wouldn't necessarily use them, but you'd have them with you. Like I know for myself, like depending on what kind of setting I'm in, my hands will, will shake a little bit. Right. Or my voice will kind of clip a little bit. And I remember distinctly, see, I have all these like trigger moments. Right. So I remember being up in front of a group of my peers and 
and presenting with a partner and I had a water bottle in my hand. And I remember when I was done in the leadership that was critiquing us or whatever, their comments back to me were, you were great, Erin. However, you had this water bottle in your hand and it was distracting. So how do you kind of work through and overcome those things? We could spend another hour talking about that long. Wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean a, we're not going to do no, it. No, Don't no. worry, people. <laughs> no, but there, that is a, a subject within itself. And that's why, like I said, I would coach someone through 12 sessions because I'm addressing all of these, these things and then giving specific exercises and going over it. But one of the things, like I said, is when you record yourself speaking and performing, that's going to be the best way for you to like understand what your nervous tics are mm-hmm. and then literally be mindful about not doing them intentionally. You have to think about it. And then also grounding yourself, understanding how to stand properly so that you're grounded. And when you do that, you're going you're gonna to build up comfortability in that actual performance in what you're doing. So the more reps you do with the proper form and proper technique, the proper tool set in your tool belt, right, so that you can deliver, the more you do it the right way, the more your anxiety of that activity lessens because you feel more prepared. Mm. So preparation is how you get rid of that. And I mean, there's, there's things like some people when they speak, they hold their fingers together the entire time as a way of like avoiding talking with their hands too much because maybe they were told, hey, you move your hands too much mm-hmm. when you talk. And there's a way that you want to be comfortable and relaxed. And there's a way that you can do it in a controlled fashion that doesn't seem robotic, that seems relaxed, because you actually are relaxed because you've learned relaxing techniques to go up before you speak. Mm. But I would say that the more prepared you are, the less that's going to happen, the more reps you get. But the reps and the preparation all require the proper technique. And it's being able to put words and phrases on the techniques is what improves it for you because you understand what you're doing more. Like, for example, when you show the inside of your hands, when you show your palms, you actually are showing the audience that you mean no harm, you come in peace, you have no weapons. Mm -hmm. When you put your arms behind you, Mm -hmm. you're actually telling the audience that you have something to hide, right? So just understanding those two things allows you to come out and go, hey, Oh, oh, wow, everybody, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for coming out today. And then you you soften the maybe the the confusion or maybe like people wondering like, what is this person doing here? Or what are they about to say? You soften how they receive you when you learn how to like come out with certain things. To, and then the other thing I would always do is teach people how to get a laugh very early on. Again, because humor is the fastest connection between strangers. You make someone laugh involuntarily, you've, you've got them. Yeah. They're like, oh, this person's interesting. Mm-hmm. And now you can start to go into what other things that you're going to say. But when you have all of those random hand gestures and the nervous tics, and you have to work those out of you by first knowing what they are. And the way someone telling you what they are is different from you seeing yourself doing. Because you're going, oh, my God, I'm doing that. I'm scratching my armpit. I'm scratching my head a bunch. Like there was a bunch of nervous tics that I had when I was nervous. Uh-huh. 
And I had to I had to learn to subtract. Okay, let me work. I'm gonna get remove that one. To remove that one. To remove that one. You ever see someone, especially with comedy shows, go up to the stage, they get the mic out of the stand, and then it's like all tangled up in the in the stand and mm-hmm. around their leg, and they're just like, and they're very awkward and how. They, but when you see somebody who's really comfortable and confident, they focus on connecting with the audience while untangling the mic from their leg. Yeah. They're, talk, they're looking right at the audience and they're like, you can't even focus on the fact that their leg is tangled in the mic stand because they literally are still focused on the task at hand because they're focused on connecting with the audience. And the last thing I'll say is that material, you only need material when you, when you fail to connect with the audience. And back to bring this full circle, when you were talking about being prepared to do your brother's wedding, first of all, you've thought about it before, you've spent time thinking about it, you've imagined it, mm-hmm. you love him dearly. So in your mind, you're already prepared. That's the same mentality you have to have with everything you do in life when it comes to speaking, because you've probably spoken a million words in your lifetime. So you're prepared, but now, you, but are you organized? Do you know how to name the tools that you're gonna deploy to appear even more prepared and like the great speaker that is inside each and every single one of us. <laughs> you make it sound so easy. Uh, it is for did, you. did I stick the landing? You did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking more gymnastics and then hands go up. Oh. <laughs> You're thinking about to the splits. Exactly. The stripper doing the splits. Hello. <laughs> I always learn something new from Jamar, and I think that's another reason why I value our relationship so much. He challenges me. He believes in me. Sometimes I think he believes in me more than I believe in myself. I need to be that confident. And the only way to do that is to put in the work, to gain experience, and to overcome the fear and just do it. Thanks for tuning in to your Such a Catch. What did you take away from today's episode? I'd love to hear your feedback and any aha moments. Please feel free to share them at Erin at YourSuchACatch.com. Until next week, think big. Remember the memory hook, beautiful, introspective, and grand gesture. Progress over perfection always as we strive for greatness. Oh,